0: Welcome to Kidding Around, a kid health podcast for everyone. Parents, grandmas, teachers, anyone who touches the life of a child. I'm your host, Dr. Candace, a board-certified pediatrician and a mom of two. I sit down with expert guests to answer your questions about all things baby, child, and teen. So if you're wondering, why does she do that? Or how can I get rid of this rash? I got you. Everybody, welcome to Kidding Around. Thank you so much for listening. I'm Dr. Candace, and today our topic is childhood obesity. You guys know that's my passion. It was my very first episode on Kidding Around in 2016, and we've had other topics. So, but this one is going to be a little bit different today because it's going beyond the usual diet and exercise, and it's with an obesity medicine expert. She's amazing. I've spent some time talking to her, and I'm just in love. So, Definitely great episode. So first, I just want to give thanks, as I always do. Don't have any particular names today. I've um, done three or four interviews in a row this week, so I have tapped out of shout-outs. So just thank everyone for following me on social media, for reading my blogs, for asking me questions, subscribing, rating, reviewing, and you know, all of the handles and tags will be at the end of this episode, so stay tuned for those. So let's welcome our guest, Dr. Fatima Stanford. She is an obesity medicine physician, scientist, and media professional who specializes in the care of adolescents, adults, and children with overweight and obesity. And she's Harvard trained, y'all. She also has co edited or authored a book, uh, Facing Overweight and Obesity A Complete Guide for Children and Adults. It's an amazing book. I haven't finished it yet, but I love the fact that it comprises childhood all the way to adulthood. We definitely need books like that. And it has some wonderful tips and some wonderful thoughts about obesity that may not come up or you may not have thought about as pertain to obesity. So thank you so much, Dr. Stanford, for coming to get around with me today. Oh, well, I was happy to be here. Thank you. So we'll jump right in. I know your time. She's busy. So <laughs> we got to get her on and get her off. <laughs> how, so how does someone know if they have overweight or obesity?
1: And why so, is that and why is knowing important to their health? So I think it's very important. Let's, let's just focus on the major differences in how we might diagnose this in the pediatric population, which differs drastically from how we would diagnose this in the adult population. And I think it's important for parents to realize that the standards that we're using to diagnose them as having obesity is very different than we would use for their children and their adolescents. And so I think that distinction is very important. So when we're looking at pediatric patients, so those patients that fall typically between the ages of 2 and 20, and I'm very specific there because the growth charts that are made for the pediatric population really go from the ages of 2 and 20. That gives us a few key points to note, which means if you're lower than the age of two or younger than the age of two. I can't technically diagnose your child as having obesity because but they won't meet the criteria based upon the definition of us using that growth chart. And that growth chart really should be plotted every time that you go and see your pediatrician or your family physician, whichever you see. And what happens is we look at it in terms of the following. If your child has a BMI or body mass index, that's between 85th and less than the 95th percentile, that's considered having overweight. And if we pass that 95th percentile, which would be based upon the gender growth charts, then we are considered to have obesity or that child has obesity. Anyone that falls between that 10th and 85th percentile would be a person that has normal weight status. And then if we're below the 10th, we're concerned about being underweight. And so we utilize these growth charts to have a sense of of the severity of one's weight. There are some additional ways to look at it in terms of the severity of pediatric obesity. Once we get beyond the 95th, unfortunately, many of the standard growth charts don't plot out for those patients that might have moderate or severe obesity as a child or adolescent, but there are some additional tiers that one that has um, special training might use or special growth charts that might use for, for our, our pediatric patients that struggle with obesity. Now, let me get to your second question. Your second question was like, okay, how do you know? And obviously how we know is we look at those growth charts. But the, the second question I think is probably even more important. We want to look at the risk for other diseases associated with obesity. And what we do know is that there are over 100 disease processes that are associated with obesity that cause illness and reduce the length of life. And for us, we want healthy lives. We want to live as long as we can possibly do in a very healthy fashion. And when we have overweight and obesity we have a problem with us being able to fulfill that dream of ours. And so what we think about in terms of those obesity-related illnesses, some of the more common ones might be type two diabetes or obstructive sleep apnea. My first diagnosis of a patient with obstructive sleep apnea was a young girl that was 11 and not uncommon with our pediatric patients that have obesity. We have patients that are predisposed to certain cancers because of their obesity. And the list goes on. I mean, they're really like literally over a hundred major diagnoses associated with obesity itself. And unfortunately, what we do as doctors, what we do in our society is we'll go and treat all of the other diseases and not treat the underlying cause, which is often the overweight and obesity. If we had just tackled that, then we may have prevented and had a high likelihood of preventing many of these other diseases that are are downstream from the obesity itself.
0: That's great. So the main take-home point from that is seeing your physician regularly asking the question, where is my child in the growth chart? Or making sure you have that discussion. Is their weight in a healthy range? Exactly. Okay. Exactly. I think that's perfect. And what that means for their health. That's very important parents to be asking and knowing that information about your child,
1: not just eyeballing them and saying, they look good. <laughs> right? Exactly. I think that we are actually, even specialists like myself that do this all day. Well, I mean, I probably am pretty decent at it just because I do it all day, but <laughs> I even, if, but if I try to guess, I'm likely maybe off at least in some way, form or fashion in terms of my visual inspection of the patient. I need to go and just do the work. Um, Thankfully, a lot of us have electronic health records where that, once we put in the height and weight, it's already graphed on a a growth chart for us. But when I was in residency, we plotted that out. We sure did. (laughs) Yeah. On the paper charts, which was nice. Um, At least you the parent got to see that visual as you plotted it. So I think that it's important, even at non preventive care visits. So, Mm -hmm. you know, of course we have our, our preventive care visits where people are going in for vaccinations and such where you might anticipate that your doctor would bring up weight. But what if the patient goes in for a visit for an asthma exacerbation? And weight appears to be a contributing factor because obesity and asthma are very closely linked. Then it would be prudent for the the physician at that time to also bring up obesity at that visit, which appears to be unrelated, but is, is quite intertwined.
0: That's so important. So we're closing down April at the end of the month, but April is dedicated to Minority Health Month. So let's talk a little bit about the health disparity of obesity. What are your thoughts about why it exists? I know that's a huge loaded question. And what can be done to close those gaps?
1: So I think it is a tough question, but I I think I can try to tackle it. Talk often on health disparities and obesity across the age spectrum, meaning starting in the pediatric population all the way into adulthood. But I think there's a few key things that we have to think about. I think the things that people most often think about are cultural differences. So, okay, as a person of African descent, we pride body types that are are larger than, let's say, our non-Hispanic white counterparts. Mm-hmm. And that that's one of the reasons why there is a huge difference. But I think that really simplifies the story. And I think it's important for us to look at our genes and the role it plays. So there was a large study that came out of the NIH at the beginning of last year, which went and looked at um, persons that were from the U.S. that were either uh, non-Hispanic, white, Asian, or African-American. And they also were very thoughtful and they looked at West African populations at the same time, um, meaning our friends from Nigeria, Ghana, and They looked at the genes and said, you know, are there anything in the genes of these individuals that might account for a higher BMI or body mass index? Remember, that's something we look at for weight. And what they found was that when they looked at the West African populations and the African American population here in the U.S., they found some genetic predispositions to having a body mass index that was about. 4.8 points higher, and only the populations that were West African or African American. They did not see these same genes play out in the non-Hispanic white population or the Asian population. So there is probably some genetic component to the likelihood of having overweight and obesity in the African American or even in the Latino Hispanic community that wasn't specifically included in that study. But I think that was very, very important. Also, it's important to look at where that fat is deposited. You know, when we're talking about fat or adipose, adipose is a fancy word for just fat. Where that fat accumulates in a person of African descent is very different from someone that is a non-Hispanic white individual. So as a person of African descent myself, What we notice, and you guys can just think about yourselves, whether you're lean or whether you have obesity, but just think about yourself, you might notice that your fat tends to be more concentrated in your hip, buttock, and thigh region. And that's part of the, the genes. And so we have what we have what when we kind of look at this in a more um medical way, that means we have more subcutaneous adipose tissue, which is not as bad as what most non-Hispanic whites have across the age spectrum from children to adults, is they have more visceral adipose tissue. And that's fancy for just saying The fat is mostly around the midsection. And when the fat is around the midsection, it predisposes us more to disease. It predisposes us to having a fatty liver, which is becoming the number one reason for liver transplants here in the United States. It predisposes us to heart disease, heart attacks. And so it's not just the weight itself. It's important to recognize that our distribution of weight as persons of African descent is often different and not quite as deleterious as a non-hispanic white individual at baseline which may mean that our health status may be slightly better I'm at a higher weight just because where our fat is distributed um, some of it is cultural so getting back to the idea of like what our culture desires and what persons of african descent or even you know hispanic latino populations are interested in. They are interested in a fuller sized body. And I do think that that's important and the foods and things that we consume in our cultures do have a a, a higher content of fat and um, things that may be deleterious to our health compared to let's say a Mediterranean style diet. So there's multiple factors that I think play a role. I think I'm going to say something that's unpopular, but I do think is, is founded. And I think when we look at systemic racism and our exposure to stress, stress is a huge thing that increases our levels of weight, especially that weight that accumulates in our midsection. And I think that as persons of African descent in a country that has a very a bad history surrounding persons that, that look and sound or act like me, that it, this living in this environment on a daily basis predisposes us to a higher likelihood of overweight and obesity. So That's a long, drawn-out answer to say that we don't know all the answers. These are just a few of the things that we do know.
0: I absolutely agree, and I thank you for going there. (laughs)
1: I really do (laughs) because
0: it's important you know we can't solve a problem unless we put it out there to be discussed and planned out to tackle so we have to put it out there and as far as children we know that African American children have higher rates of obesity than Mm -hmm. white counterparts Mm -hmm. and so those same cultural genetic as you mentioned factors can play into that as well and one that, that I'm aware of is we know that the intake of processed foods and minority populations having more likelihood of poverty and ha- being in area of food, areas of food deserts and things of that nature can also contribute as well. Absolutely.
1: So in I think the those efforts, are, you know, what we call the like the social determinants. Yes, absolutely. So absolutely. you know, those definitely play a role. I think that what we end up doing, however, when we're looking at obesity is is that we kind of assume that that's the entire story mm-hmm. and i do think it's part of the story but when you control for those factors we still have higher rates of overweight and obesity and so we have to to keep that in mind also so those
0: genes and the stress levels can definitely be huge factors i hear
1: you yes that gene environment interaction you know those yes. the genes are there you know we can't mm-hmm. change our moms and our dads and our grandparents that that's just the cards we were dealt but we also can't change that we're in an obesogenic environment. And by right. obesogenic environment, overall, if we look at a persons across the race, ethnicity spectrum or gender spectrum, what we see is that we have a, a, an environment where our diet quality is often not optimal. And by optimal, I mean high levels of lean protein, whole grains, fruits and vegetables, when we're looking at physical activity, I think that we we sell the wrong message with regards to physical activity. We say, oh, well, let's go exercise to lose weight when it, on average, it helps us to maintain our weight. So we're doing the exercise for the wrong reasons. I mean, it definitely contributes to overall health, but um, most often does not lead to significant loss. Sleep quality and duration, I mean, even if we look at infants and toddlers that are of African descent, we find that the sleep quality is not as optimal. And if persons don't have good optimal sleep, we know that they begin to struggle with their weight earlier. Um, and there are 30-plus-year studies that show that there are differences in those that get adequate sleep versus those that don't in terms of how much the higher the likelihood is of obesity. Um, medications, unfortunately, that we prescribe to patients. Um, so yes, Dr. Candace you and myself, we're contributors, unfortunately, right. to this problem of obesity and some of the medicines we might prescribe and not stop as, as quickly as we need or not use medications that might counteract the weight gain that would be associated with the prescription of some of these drugs that are needed in our patients. And then thermogenesis, which is very, it sounds like a fancy word, but it's just how much our body's burning, both with rest and with activity. And that that's really genetically inherited. So coming back to this issue of race and ethnicity, what we do know is that at all weight classes, meaning if you're lean or if you have overweight or obesity, as African-Americans, we burn less and nobody really knows why, but we do have a lower resting energy expenditure at baseline. And that may account for some of the differences in weight, meaning how much we're able to burn with activity and at rest is just lower. Um, so that is what it is, unfortunately. So I love that you
0: just went right ahead and answered my next question. So I'm gonna tell them what it was and just recap and we're gonna move on. I love <laughs> so, it. I love it, love it. You said The question was, when managing obesity, many only consider lifestyle modifications like diet and exercise, like you said. What other factors contribute to obesity and how do we address those? And you just said those factors could be genetics, thermogenesis, getting good sleep, maximizing that, managing your stress appropriately, medications, knowing what you're taking, doctors doing better with putting them on if we need them, taking them off if we don't need them, or choosing better ones that are less, I guess, obesogenic, like you said. And then our environment, how our environment contributes to obesity as well. So all of those things, we can maybe make some adjustments. Any other tips as to how to adjust those things?
1: Um, I think that, you know, they're just really basic things that if I were saying, you know, we're talking in some ways at some high level things, but what are things that you can do to just improve, let's say, your diet? So, I mean, I think that people want to go on a diet and I'm completely against that. Like I said, lean proteins, whole grains, fruits, vegetables, number one. Number two, when we're looking at physical activity for most of our pediatric patients, we want at least 60 minutes of moderate activity. What that means is moderate means that you probably want your child to take a bath or shower afterwards because they may not be as fragrant as they were prior to that activity. That's how you know that <laughs> they like were, that. were doing <laughs> doing the right <laughs> level, right? Not as fragrant um, and that gets uh, course, becomes an, a whole different phenomenon once they get into adolescence um, in terms of that needing, needing that shower um, sooner than later. And so that's what I think about a lot of times kids. Oh yeah, I walked here. No, um, it's not that I don't care about walking. I think walking is important, but unless they're walking up 10 plus grade inclined, they're probably not going to get the level of intensity that I'm thinking. That sleep is huge. And so I, I think parents, I know this is an unpopular opinion, but I think move the TVs out of the room, move yes. the iPads, the iPhones, all of the level. Devices, because what happens is, if we use those within literally an hour, sometimes I even say two hours of bedtime, it influences our brain's ability to get um, restful sleep. So I have patients stop using their television, their computer, their iPads, iPhones, etc. Um, any of the Apple or Kindle or whomever, even mm-hmm. with the the dark light that that is present, it can then influence brain, our hypothalamus, which in- controls our weight, to say, "Hey, I'm supposed to be awake." When indeed it's supposed to be asleep, so we may not get as restorative of sleep, and sleep poor sleep quality can lend itself to to overweight and obesity. So I think those are really key things that you can do at home that you can actually take ownership of, and doesn't have to be discussed with your doctor. I think that I can't think of one doctor that would disagree with that that recommendation. It's just harder to implement than it's it's easier said than done, basically. Right. And I think it's going to take some time if this is something completely out of the realm of what you do to make that happen within your household.
0: Mm, That's great. I love that you address weight stigma and bias and the influence that media has on the obesity epidemic. Educate Mm -hmm. us on how they relate to obesity.
1: So, you know, it's really important for us to recognize that when we look at weight bias and stigma, our influences, especially as as parents, um, as pediatricians, the like, on our children, on our infants, starts very, very early. So there's there was a large study that was done, and it looked at mothers and their children, what we call mother-children dyads, meaning a mom and their son or daughter. And what they did was they would show pictures to these infants starting at around nine months of age, and they tested them all the way up to 48 months. So these are really young children and toddlers. Um, and what they found was that children typically preferred looking at a heavier body type around 11 months of age when they were given pictures. That's what picture they would pick. But if their mother had strong weight bias, meaning that they had feelings either implicit, meaning they harbor feelings of, of um, somewhat disdain to persons with obesity, or explicit, meaning I just vocalize that, oh, I don't like persons that have obesity. Those children were then quickly influenced to not like that individual that had obesity or, you know, had a fuller body size. So by 32 months of age, this is how early it starts. Mm. 32 months of age in the study, those children had a, a disdain and a significant preference for the leaner body type, which was strongly influenced by their mother's bias. Now, you, it's not just the moms, you know, I'm not going to I'm not going to put everything on the moms. That study just was one of the ones that really looked at very young individuals. There have been other subsequent studies that have looked at the mom and the dad and looked at the influences and both mother and father have strong influence on a child's likelihood of having weight bias and stigma. So you might be like, well, why does that matter? Why do we care about my child having weight bias and stigma? But we know that bullying starts pretty early. Mm-hmm. And if, you are learning that, ooh, someone that has a heavier body type is inferior to myself, you may either start to bully or if the person has obesity, they are likely receiving that bullying. And actually that can have long-term implications for health. So they did a lovely study where they looked at persons, both both males and females, and looked at their source of where they received their stigma from. Was it from their family or was it from their peers? And how did it affect them into adulthood at the age of 30 plus? So they studied them for 15 plus years. And they found that when children were exposed to this weight bias and stigma early in life, that it affected their health outcomes. They had higher levels of inflammatory markers in their blood. They had higher blood sugars, higher blood pressure, they were less likely to have trust for healthcare providers. I mean, there's this whole gamut of, of issues. they likely to have disordered eating, a higher risk of suicidality, which is a major issue. These are things we don't think about, but when people feel uncomfortable in the skin that they're in, because yes. we as adults or their peers say something, it can lead to really unfortunate outcomes. And so very, very important. Key things I would say in terms of kind of take home points, always use people first language with obesity. And what I mean by that is we never call someone an obese person. They have the disease that is obesity. So we have a person with mild, moderate, or severe obesity, a young girl with obesity, not an obese young girl. We must change our language. We should just eliminate altogether the word morbid. A lot of patients come in and say, well, I'm not morbidly obese. Immediately scratch what they're saying. I know that it's in the medical literature. I know it's in the coding, but it's the coding in and of itself also has stigma. And our language we use in medicine is highly stigmatizing. This term morbid is associated with the severity of obesity. And so instead of saying morbid, which I think is highly stigmatizing, why not just say this patient has severe obesity? And then we treat the severity of their obesity. So that language matters and us being understanding. And so what I tell patients or people to do also is you may feel like, you know, I don't really have any stigma. But remember, we talked about the difference between implicit, meaning that bias we don't know exists within us, and that explicit bias, the bias that we are very well aware of. And often, especially healthcare professionals harbor high levels of implicit bias. We don't realize we have it. So there's a test called the Harvard IAT, and that stands for the Implicit Associations Test. And there is one specifically surrounding weight that you can take for free if you Google the Harvard IAT. And you can see yourself if you do have implicit or explicit weight bias, and just knowing can influence what you do with your child and how you interact with your physician.
0: Wow. And I just want to tell you guys, because, you know, I am as transparent as they come. She taught me something about this today. I spoke incorrectly when we first got on this call, and she <laughs> let me know, hold on. <laughs> Very nicely. Thank you, Dr. <laughs> let's fix that. Let's talk about what you just said. And I didn't even realize I was doing it, because if you know me, I'm the kindest person. I don't want to hurt anybody. I'm just here to help and educate and make it better. But I was even saying it incorrectly, and she let me know that patients remember that from their people pediatrician. So I learned today too.
1: (laughs) Absolutely. Well, you know, it's all a work in progress. And um, I do like to, unfortunately, I was made aware of something that I did incorrectly early in life. And so when we always talk about like, oh, it's only what we do as adults. I think it's important to realize what I talked about is how peers influence how we well how we feel. So I was at an obesity conference in the not so, I would say within the last three years, and I had a colleague that kept trying to pull me aside. For those that know me that may be on this podcast or, or don't, I'm, I'm a pretty talkative, gregarious person, mm-hmm. and so I'm usually kind of all over the place, I'm talking to multiple people, hard to contain. But at this particular conference, this particular person kept trying to pull me aside away from the crowd, which was almost like an act of Congress, but she was eventually successful. And when she finally got me alone, she said to me, she said, well, let me give you a little bit of context. We, This particular person I've known since I was a young child growing up in Atlanta, Georgia, we used to take dance class together at Spelman College. And so that's just to give you some context of, mm-hmm. of how early I, I knew this woman who's a, a, an adult like myself, um, obviously, since we both continued to grow as, as, that, as that happens. <laughs> and, you know, she said to me, well, Fatima, you know, I don't know if you notice that I've always been very standoffish towards you. So that was kind of like a a newsflash there because I just thought that it was a different personality type. And that was just how she was. (laughs) Like if if you have 35 plus years of of that personality type, you just assume that's That's their personality. Yeah. (laughs) So we recognize that we all have different personalities in the way we engage and interact with the world differs from person to person and it's just you know some of what's what makes us this great tapestry of of who we are as humans Um, but I obviously am noticing that this was not just her personality this was obviously her interaction with me and that it obviously must differ from others and so she said to me well there's a reason why there that is and I was like okay so today here at this conference yes (laughs) at this conference at this kind of the reason why this is and she says when we were five or six you came up to me in dance class and you said, you're fat. And then you what? walked off. And so I was appalled because here I am as you're at the international obesity expert that I would do that. And often the first thing that people say is they kind of come to my rescue and they're like, oh, well, you're five. Okay. Right. Well, so, but no, this obviously had such an indelible, li- had left such an indelible mark on her that she's mm-hmm. telling me almost 35 years later about what I said to her at, which I don't recall, but I'm sure if she remembers it, it happened. happened, Right. But then this is and this is where, I mean, it hurt already that like I was responsible for this horrible identifying point in her life that influenced her to pursue a career in obesity medicine, which is what she does. But she said this, and this is where I, I really, I mean, it just, I mean, dagger in my heart and it still exists. Um, to this day. And she said, well, you know, I saw you doing this work and, you know, I, you know, obviously been following your work. And I said to myself, if you are capable of change, anyone is capable of change. Oh, wow. Right. So, so you guys, so the obesity expert, the Harvard trained, the person that's done all the fellowships, Right. obviously I hurt someone and it's not uh, obviously shining moment in my life. And yes, I was five, but that left a significant imprint on her and her interaction with the world was influenced by that early statement to her in dance class when we were five or six years old right um, as someone that's 40 plus you know I can tell you that that was a little while ago but I do remember visually how she looked as a young girl, because you can remember that context. And she did, you know, have obesity. And I'm sad that I had such explicit bias to her that I said that to her. But what you guys, just for those that may harbor this bias, if I am capable of change, anyone is.
0: And I guess the second point to that is, and you've said it, words hurt and you were five and I'm going to just say that. And like you said, you very well could have gotten it from the adults in your life. Absolutely. And so it's important that parents, my primary audience, understand that how we act, what we say, that modeling effect to our children that then can create something like this for them later in life. So it's very important.
1: Absolutely. So I think it's important to make sure that what we're saying and what we're not saying is how important that is. So people, a lot of times, especially when I give this talk about pediatric obesity to a group of parents, is they'll come up to me. And and when I give that data about how they may have influenced their child, they're like, well, I don't ever say anything about someone that has obesity. And I said, well, sometimes it's not what you're saying. It may be what you're not saying. So for example, you might be watching a television show and only the lean individuals might you comment on their beauty. And so you say, oh, that's such a wonderful, really lovely looking girl or lovely guy or whatever, but you never comment on those patients or persons. My Sorry, my brain is, in, you can tell <laughs> I'm in doctor, mode. those persons that are of heavier status, you never say, wow, they're just gorgeous right. or whatever it might be. And so your inability to acknowledge or even feel yourself that that person is also indeed beautiful is right. something that they're receiving. They're saying, okay, right. well, she, she, or he. Never commented about that person, so oh, they consistently don't comment on people that look like that, so they must not be
0: right attractive.
1: And, so, and this, yeah. yeah. And this is totally off
0: topic, but that happens with colorism. That happens with hair type. That happens in TV and shows and who they cast and the type of media that we're seeing. We're always pushing those biases. I can definitely see that. So just be careful in how we take it in and what we expose our kids to and maybe have those conversations with them. Absolutely. Oh, wow. So my next question is, this is a a patient speaking, is my doctor addressing my weight appropriately? I guess it would be a parent about their child. Is my Mm -hmm. doctor addressing my child's weight appropriately? Okay. Okay. So I want parents to be able to advocate for themselves because you Mm -hmm. and I talked earlier about how even in where I practice, how the different providers manage obesity, right? And I was Mm -hmm. trying to get some pointers from you and some things to take back to us that we can do better. So, So give them some guidance as a point of advocacy for themselves and their children. When do I need labs? When do I need referrals? And there are algorithms and, and guidelines and things of that nature. So maybe we can go down through that or you can pick a case scenario and just take parents through that.
1: Well, you know, I think it varies from person to person, but I think key things that I just going to go based mm-hmm. on what would happen if you were seeing me as a new patient, as a new pediatric patient in my office. First of all, um, I have a pretty lengthy initial visit. Um, so it's an hour in length where I'm getting everything from what was your birth weight and status? Did you begin to struggle with your weight or appear to struggle with your weight as an infant? did you have early exposure to antibiotics? Early exposure to antibiotics, for example, can change the gut microbiome. What that means is the bacteria in the gut. And when we change that bacteria in the gut, it can predispose us to having obesity. Gut bacteria of lean individuals differs quite dramatically from those that have obesity. And there are large studies that have recently been published that show that those early exposures, especially if there's very frequent exposures, can have a play a role in an obesity. So I might be asking about that. I'm asking about your family history. So if both parents have obesity, the likelihood that the child will have obesity is pretty high. And it's not saying that it's inevitable, but it's a high, a much, much higher likelihood than someone being born to parents that are very lean. So we have to pay attention to the family history, the grandparents, you know, siblings, things of that sort. We're paying attention to medications that they may have been prescribed that may cause weight gain, medications that are used to treat psychiatric illnesses, used to treat nerve conditions, used to treat blood pressure or heart disease, A lot of these these drugs can cause weight gain and, and are prescribed in the pediatric population. I'm going to ask about things that are more simple, right? Looking at lifestyle, like what is the diet quality of an individual? What are they doing in terms of physical activity? Was there a change where there was a rapid gain of weight when someone was completely normal at one point in time, how is sleep hygiene? You know, are we going to sleep and getting adequate sleep or are we using screen time too excessively? The American Academy of Pediatrics recommends less than two hours of leisure time screen activity, which I can tell you that almost all of us fell at. If you mm-hmm. happen to have an iPhone, for example, it'll tell you what your weekly stats That's are. right? And it is often much higher than we would like to admit. As adults. And so you can imagine for kids that is probably even higher because they have more leisure time than we do as, as working adults. And so all of these things, you know, I'm going to pay attention to. And then there are going to be certain laboratory tests that I might take. And this may vary based upon age. So usually over 10 and over, there's a pretty standard set of, of laboratory studies that I might be checking to look at your metabolic status, your nutritional profile, looking at like blood sugar, liver enzymes thyroid studies, your average blood sugar. Um, I might be doing things like measuring your waist circumference to get a sense of where carrying your weight. And so there's a lot of different things that can go into that visit. I'll look for signs on the body. So one of the things that may point to your higher likelihood of developing type two diabetes is this fancy terminology called acanthosis nigricans, which is darkening of the skin that might be on the neck or in the axilla, which means the armpits or things of that sort. And those things might just give me an alarm that, hey, there's something going on in the metabolic profile of this patient that unfortunately predisposes them to developing type 2 diabetes pretty early. And so my goal is to look at all of these things, put together the picture for that individual, recognizing that each of us have a different response to different interventions. And by different interventions, I mean your pediatrician may wanna focus on lifestyle as as the first thing, Um, meaning those diet, physical activity, sleep, and stress. And then they may say, you know what, I really do think we need to use medication to help treat um, your weight and weight status. And then for those that have moderate to severe obesity, they may say, you know, I really think we need to refer you for consideration for weight loss surgery. And I think that we must recognize that that's an important tool for patients with moderate to severe obesity in the pediatric population. And it's very underutilized for that population.
0: Right. Just a couple of points of clarification. So, just so your parents know, we're not talking about a child with normal weight. We do assess all those things and talk about diet and exercise, check your blood pressure, you know, look for the same markers on exam, things of that nature, family history where you have obesity, um the different severities of overweight or obesity, that's when we start going into these other areas that Dr. Stanford just mentioned,
1: correct? Absolutely. Okay. Absolutely, it's important. Yeah, we don't. It's a. Because it's a lot a, of times a, it's like, I just want labs
0: just to make sure she's okay, or yeah. what about it? Because she have diabetes, and I'm like, well, there's no reason to think that your blood pressure is great, your normal weight, everything looks good. I don't see anything that points to that. No, we don't need any labs. No, we don't need this.
1: Right. And so I think when patients actually have obesity, so that's, that's the focus yes. of, of our talk is when a person actually has obesity. These are things that we would think about, Absolutely. not. Um, just because we want to have fun or whatever.
0: And that's for my parents, because you know they ask me all the time. Yes. (laughs) (laughs) They just want to do stuff. You never do labs. And I'm like, there's no reason to. It's not like adults every
1: year you go in, you get your blood work.
0: You know, it's different.
1: (laughs) It's different. Exactly. I think that's important. I think it's important for us to recognize that we don't do these. This is for a patient coming in specifically for this trying to discern if there is an issue with their weight status and how severe is their issue. So that's what we're thinking about. Yeah. And what referrals? You're in an academic
0: center. I'm an outpatient. I'm not connected to the academic center. I can refer, but I'm not there. And so in that outpatient setting, what referrals would a parent advocate for their child in this setting?
1: So, if a patient, let's say they've been seeing their pediatrician and they have overweight and obesity across the age spectrum, so let's remember as early as two, and they're you're noticing that wow, this is is pretty much a struggle, and I'm doing all of these things to really to to address this as much as I can do from a lifestyle perspective. Then you might say to your pediatrician, "Is there a way that I can get referred to a center that specifically addresses weight?" And so, at our center, for example, there are two levels of what that would look like. So there is a um, like a healthy lifestyle and I don't know actually what they're, I can't think of what it's called specifically, but it's more for persons that have maybe mild obesity um, across the age spectrum and their focus is, is 100% lifestyle. Or you may need a more tertiary care center, like the center that I work in, where we would do anything from lifestyle all the way up to weight loss surgery. And in this type of center, your child would likely be evaluated by multiple providers an obesity medicine physician like myself, I'm a psychologist, a dietitian. Um, maybe even a surgeon just depends upon what they need. but, um, we would have the resources to to cover all the, of that spectrum.
0: absolutely. So there are levels of care. That's what I yes. want you guys to know. Yes. And if we're not getting it outpatient, we need to move on.
1: Exactly. <laughs> maybe exactly. okay, that's fine. I mean, the whole thing is is that we want, obviously for a lot of care to happen um with you know the pediatrician, whatever can happen with the pediatrician or with the family physician but we recognize that many patients they may need a higher level of care than can be delivered just with the pediatrician in the office so and that's where someone like myself would come in
0: Right. That's great. So I have two more questions and we're going to get you out of here because I know time is winding up. So let's talk about, and you've done this already, but talk about a family, how important the whole family is to helping this child manage their obesity, right?
1: So very important. Okay.
0: Sorry. No, 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 that's it. That's it. And then you said something earlier about... I don't recommend diets. So so talk about that because there's all these plans, you know, mm-hmm. different things. And I think you have them listed in your book. And that's mm-hmm. not what we're promoting. And exactly. oftentimes, parents exactly. will jump on I diets. I promote all the
1: issues that, that are with all of those diets. Right. So, um, so this is, and also, you guys, that means Dr. Candace actually is reading the book, so Yay! she actually knows that part of it. But first of all, it's important to recognize that when we look at child-focused interventions for persons that have obesity, meaning let's say your child has obesity, versus family-focused, that child focus always does worst. Meaning that if we only focus on the child and what the child has to do to improve, then we're often going to fail. When we focus on the entire family and what the family has to do to improve if we're looking at behaviors, that's when we're able to have success. So if little Johnny has obesity, but we have some things in this environment that are not supportive of little Johnny getting having success, then it's important for us to reevaluate our whole environment. So, you know, Johnny, little Johnny, who's eight years old, He's likely not buying the groceries. I mean, maybe you have a prodigy in the, that's doing the grocery list and going out and doing the buying. That's and that's right. great. But likely it's the parents that are, are buying and deciding what to buy or maybe influenced by what Johnny wants. He may say, hey, when I'm in the grocery store, I want this or that. But ultimately you as parents have the say-so of what happens and what mm-hmm. goes in the household. In terms of physical activity, if children see their parents being active, they themselves are more likely to be active. So it's not just telling Johnny that, Johnny, you need to go out and do that 60 minutes of activity that makes you not as fragrant that we talked about earlier, that you go out with Johnny and do that activity or do something that you could do together or, you know, just show, hey, I'm going to go out for a bicycle ride. And let me tell you, Johnny's seeing that behavior that you're doing. And if you're doing that very early He sees that that's something that I should just be doing. My parents do it every day, so I should be doing it every day. So it's important to recognize that we're just not going to look at that person as the problem person, right, as if that's the one person that struggles with the weight. It's the entire family that needs an overhaul, that environment surrounding food, the environment surrounding sleep and stress and activity has to be overhauled as a family to make sure that persons have success. And I think it's important. So it's the family. It's not the child. It's family focused, always better. Child focus almost always fails. So yes. it's important. Yeah.
0: Yes. And don't push any, any diets, no
1: Jenny Craig, no this,
0: no that, no, no that. Um, I mean, um, I think that
1: Exactly. I really think it's important. I, I know that unfortunately we've become very diet focused and, but I think that for our parents that have, have lived on this earth a little bit longer, a few more rotations around the sun, um, <laughs> what we can tell about these diets is that they come and they go. So right now, one of the popular diets, I actually don't cover this in my book, which fortunately I think is an unfortunate thing, but the ketogenic diet is very, very popular. It's what we hear about. It's what people are doing, but it really It's nothing new under the sun, right? If you look back at Atkins from the late 90s, early 2000s, it's really just a reinvention of Atkins with a little deviation. And initially with Atkins, a lot of people lost a lot of weight. Did they sustain that weight loss? The answer is most often not. And what I want for parents to think about with their children or with themselves if they struggle with weight is what can you do that's sustainable for the rest of your life? And if you can answer that, what you're doing is healthy and sustainable for the next 50 plus years, then that's the right plan for you. If mm-hmm. it's not, I want us to think about it. And if we look at the ketogenic diet, and this is something that pediatricians are very familiar with, the only data that we have in terms of support of the ketogenic diet and is for children who have refractory seizure disorders. Right. We have no data long term on this this for a diet plan um and so i really think we need to be thoughtful about that for our patient that's good all right so let's give some resources
0: you have the book so facing overweight and obesity a complete guide for children and adolescents where can they get that in any websites or programs or apps even i love apps i off, i recommend those to my patients all the time because they love their phones
1: absolutely well my book i you know so for persons that um, use amazon which i think is the entire world yeah it is Available on Amazon as either a paperback or in Kindle format. If you have Kindle Unlimited, it is included in your Kindle Unlimited subscription. The paperback is also available. So just look up Facing Overweight and Obesity, or you can look up my name. I do have two books, but you'll obviously recognize that the other book is for people in medical school. And unless you're in medical school, you probably don't want the other book, (laughs) um, which helps prepare you for the step one of the board examination. So I do think that's a great resource. I think, in terms of other resources that are accessible online, the American Academy of Pediatrics has their childhood. Their Healthy Childhood Institute or something of this sort. I don't know if I'm remembering the words exactly in the order, but there are a lot of free resources that are available on the American Academy of Pediatrics site. The CDC, so the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention, has a lot of information if you want about learning about overweight and obesity and activity and its influence on in overweight and obesity is very easy to, to get from that particular site. Um, In terms of apps, a lot of the apps I feel like are really geared that I use are more geared towards the adult population. However, if people want to just track what they're eating and their activity, there are a few apps that a lot of people like. My Daily Plate or as one of them that people mm-hmm. really like to use. My Fitness Pal and the Lucid app is also something that people like to use. Um, I don't necessarily think that it's all about calories. And I think this whole idea of calories and just measuring calories to determine weight loss is, is actually archaic. But I do think it at least gives you a sense of like what the quality is, like how, you know, what's your distribution of your macronutrients, i.e. fat, protein, and carbohydrates is. And so those things can at least help you gauge. It can also help you gauge with activity. And a lot of physicians now have a way for you to integrate your smart watches, such as the Fitbit or the Apple Watch, et cetera, with their personal charts within their respective doctor's offices, which can communicate information. So I would always inquire to see if if your doctor has access to that, because that may be a accountability tool. So for example, I have a way that patients can have their weight their activity, their blood pressure transmitted directly into my electronic health record. And that's a newer phenomenon for, for our patients, but um, they like to use it. And sometimes they just want to send that my way so they can, can be accountable for that work that they say they're doing. And, and I don't think it, you don't have to do that level, but it is helpful for us to just be able to gauge. So there's a lot of, a lot of great resources out there, but those are some of the ones that I think I would particularly recommend.
0: Awesome. I know we re- went over and you got to go. Thank you so much. This is so informative. And we'll have all of that information on the show note and on the website with the podcast episode. Thank
1: you so much, Dr. Stanford. No, <laughs> I have a lot of names. <laughs> no, I really appreciate it. Thanks, you guys. And my goal is for you guys to just have the happiest, healthiest lives you can. That's right. Let's not hyper focus on the number on the scale. Remember, we talk about the number related to where weight's distributed, related to the likelihood of, of risk of other diseases and those Things are all important, but let's not become so obsessive that we lend ourselves to something that's at another end of the spectrum, which is which is the eating disorder. And so, I think it's important to recognize that.
0: Thank you so much, and thank you guys for listening. We'll talk soon. I hope you enjoyed this episode and learned something today to promote health and well-being in children. Let me know by subscribing to the podcast on drcandicemd.com and iTunes or SoundCloud feel free to leave me comments and questions you never know they may be on the show also follow me on Facebook Twitter and Instagram if you would like for me to be involved with your kid related event or be a health expert on air or in print please feel free to contact me at info at thanks for listening we'll kid around soon